Certainly the afternoon as the hours of this evening are have beginning to come upon us, we're appreciative and thankful for the opportunity that's been given to us as we ponder the state of affairs of many around the globe and the difficulties and certainly the crisis and catastrophes that have come their way. We, I know many of us, as we've heard today in both our announcements and even in our prayers, are continuing to be mindful of those scenes we've seen on the television, the devastation on that island nation of Haiti, and certainly, hopefully, things in the near future with aid and other aids will, will be better for them. And we, of course, are happy that God's given us the opportunity to be a part of a relief effort on their behalf, and we trust that the church there can perhaps have an opportunity through the gloominess and darkness of even this to maybe share forth to some through an act of benevolence, the character of a loving God in heaven who may be able to help them maybe in ways that beforehand they would never have imagined. It is tonight that as we come to our study of 1 Corinthians 16, or at least one of the verses in that chapter, I would ask you to consider with me some thoughts about the addiction of the house of Stephanus. As we give some thought to the addiction of that house, might we begin with some introductory thoughts in regard to matters like this? Certainly, as one gives some thought to the word addiction, I suspect we each are mindful of what a negative connotation that usually brings. And are we not living in a world where that seems to be somewhat rampant? all kinds of addictions to all kinds of varieties of fleshly or carnal matters, and as one appreciates what often comes in consequence of them, it seems to not only not be good, it is often devastating to the individual, to the person's family, often to their career, their profession, their livelihood, their impact on the community. All of it seems to suffer dramatically as a result of one or other addictions. And yet the commonplace nature still is astounding. One might hope or at least think that perhaps as one witnessed the devastation in the lives of others that one would be less likely to fall into that trap oneself. However, it seems with each passing generation there are new addictions, there are new things in which one can allow oneself to be overwhelmed and overcome. And so tonight might we give some refreshing consideration to the one and only occurrence in all the, new, the King James Version of the Bible where the word addicted occurs. What was the usage on this occasion? What was the thrust behind it? In what way was it presented? Was it negative or was it positive? As we give some thought to this usage of the word addiction in 1 Corinthians 16 verse 15, again that verse as Brother Lucas read for us a moment ago reads like this, I beseech you, brethren, Ye know the house of Stephanus, that it is the first fruits of Achaia, and that they have addicted themselves to the ministry of the saints. I would submit that this evening one approach we might take would be to first attempt to appreciate the setting of this final chapter in the first Corinthian letter, and then with that setting in place, to cast the spotlight more clearly upon that verse that we just read. For after all, the context will be a rather interesting and useful guide. And with that in mind, let's proceed to do that very matter. First of all, with regard to this context, we each are understanding of the fact that the first Corinthian epistle can be some difficult plowing from time to time. As we start in chapter 1 and move our way through that book, we can almost hear the voice of God thunder through the revelation of the Holy Spirit. And especially through the pen of the Apostle Paul, as he rather powerfully and somewhat in rebuking character, attempts to correct the Corinthian congregation. 
The church at Corinth abode in a city that was known for its addictions. They were known for the licentious and lewd character of the world in which they lived. That ancient city of Corinth, in fact, was, as we shall see in our Wednesday night studies when, when the proper time comes, we will be reminded of just the state of affairs in which that church was called upon not only to exist, but to flourish. Notice just a few of the things that Paul needed to correct this congregation with respect to. In the opening chapters, especially the first four, one sees the impressive thrust behind the error of division. Here was a congregation, it seems, beginning to be given to pluralism. You accept your leader, I'll accept mine, and we'll all be fine. And Paul had to warn them in chapter 1, verse 10 in particular, that ye all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and the same judgment. Notice he then told them, you are not then in a position to follow Paulus, and to follow Paul, and to follow Peter, who died for you, whose blood was shed for you, in whose name were you baptized? However, Paul was only getting started. In chapter 3, he rebuked them for their immaturity. There, they were still carnal, they were fleshly in spirit, and Paul said, I can't even share with you the deepness of that which I would like to, because you're not mature enough to bear it. And hence, he encouraged them to work and labor and strive to bring yourself into harmony with the teaching and maturity of the gospel, so that you will be a fellow laborer with the God of heaven, and will be able to be a blessing even to those round about you. You'll notice in chapters 12 and 13 in particular, they were rebuked for their attitude. Their attitude was far too shallow. It wasn't an attitude of godliness. It wasn't an attitude of piousness, an attitude devoted to the things of heaven. It was again an attitude that far often concentrated on self. What would I like? What do I prefer? You need to submit to me. And Paul said, Brethren, this is not the manner in which the church ought to be. This leads to a fleshly carnal behavior that looks far too much inward and never enough toward the outward nature of the beauty of God's gospel. Furthermore, we notice not only were there attitude problems, in that same book we appreciate in chapter 14 in particular, they were ignorant of some things. Interesting, isn't it, how you and I might take that to be an insult, and maybe when we could do better it would be, but Paul said you need to learn some things. You still are far too ignorant of some of the major matters of the truth of God. Are we getting a feeling that this church had many things with which they needed to correct, many things that they needed to devote some attention and effort to? In addition to that, in chapter 5, believe it or not, they tolerated sin in their very midst. There was a man in their midst living in fornication. Not only did they not seek to correct him, to disfellowship him, if you please, they in fact even assisted in lifting him up, encouraging him in this. And two, Paul spent two chapters to attempt to rebuke them for that and said these things ought not so to be. Today ought not we thus to be appreciative of godly men like elders who will not tolerate sin in the camp, but who in love will seek to kindly bring it to the person's attention and hopefully that person will come to his or her senses and repent of that. 
this church in Corinth finally did that very thing. And in the second Corinthian letter, Paul commended them for that. Notice furthermore in this same book, they failed to implement the matter of love. Whereas they ought to have exhibited the love of God through Christ, on more than one occasion they had failed in that regard. Needless to say, though more things could have been listed, this is enough to help us see this could have been a very hard letter. A letter in which many things were supposed to be changed. When we realize how difficult it is for human beings to sometimes change, we think everybody else is the problem but me. You're the one with the difficulty. I'm the one that's all right. And yet Paul said, you have a lot of work to do, Corinth. I know you're in a difficult place. The city of Corinth is a veritable hotbed of the devil. But nonetheless, you have problems. And it is on those problems you need to work. I say all of that in context to bring us to the last chapter of this book. With a book through 15 chapters in which they have been rebuked, corrected, reproved, and set forth the truth on many things, how might the Apostle Paul close this book? In what way might he finally end it in such a way to encourage them in a way to implement some of those changes? Let us come to the 16th chapter of the book and just note in passing the way in which he chooses to end this book. On a number of occasions throughout the closing verses, Paul sends very warm and cordial greetings and salutations to these people. Not only does he send it, he gives the names of many who were with him who were also sending greetings to these people. As you begin reading in verse 15 in particular, you notice with me that there is a mention of the house of Stephanus. Furthermore, you'll notice that in verse 17, he says, I, was, I am glad for the coming of Stephanus and for Tenetus and Achaicus, for that which was lacking on your part, they have supplied. Might we at least take note that as Paul closes the book and sends these warm greetings, as difficult and as direct as Paul's message to them had been, he had not given up on them. You and I might have noticed with a list of problems that long, maybe there's no hope for this church. Maybe it'd be better if it just withered and died. Maybe it'd be better if those folks just gave up. Paul didn't feel that way. In fact, he had the great encouragement that his message, sent of course by the Holy Spirit, would fall into some hearts who, though a bit resistant at first, would come to realize the truth and love embedded in it and would finally give their lives over to the truth that they had been taught. Thankfully, that's exactly what happened. And you and I are blessed today with the book of 2 Corinthians as a testimony to that, to that very thing. Interestingly, as you note near the close of that chapter, uh, chapter 16, the title of tonight's lesson focuses on that gentleman and his house, whose name was Stephanus. I beseech you, verse 15, Brethren, ye know the house of Stephanus, that it is the firstfruits of Achaia, and they that have addicted themselves to the ministry of the saints. Paul made a special mention of the house of Stephanus. That gentleman is not mentioned very many times in the New Testament. In fact, very, very few. But yet what is said of him is a rather high complimentary note. For on this occasion, Paul made this statement beseeching with respect to the house of Stephanus that it was the first fruits of Achaia. 
you and I might ponder what it means to have stated that it's the first fruits of Achaia. In fact, as the Roman letter drew to its conclusion, a similar statement there was made about the household of Stephanus. In particular, as one notes, Romans 16, verse number 5. Achaia. As we think about the geography of the ancient world, and to some extent the geography still of that part of the world, in your mind's eye, if you can picture the country of Greece, I realize as you think about Italy, it of course is shaped like a boot, and as you move just to its west, or rather to its east, and you appreciate across the Adriatic Sea, the next country is that of Greece. With regard to Greece, it was divided into two major sections or parts. On the north was Macedonia. And in our study of Acts, we noticed many references as Paul traveled through Macedonia, such as to the church in Philippi, to the church in Thessalonica, and some other congregations like Berea. That was the northern district or section of Greece. The southern section was known as Achaia. And here again, Paul mentions the first fruits of Achaia. Interestingly, as one gives some thought to that lower section, one of its principal cities was Corinth. Of course, the very city to which the first Corinthian letter was addressed. And hence, as Paul made reference to Stephanus and that house, they apparently were some of the first converts in that Achaean region of the, of the country of Greece. That alone is rather significant, isn't it? The first converts, they were somewhat standing by, by themselves or standing alone. As Paul, on that second missionary journey, came to that area, it would thus seem that the household of Stephanus were among the first who received the gospel, who responded in faith, and who in love proceeded to cling tightly to the very truth that God had revealed. That's a rather beautiful consideration, isn't it? Though many in Corinth were such that the church was not all that it should be, nonetheless there was Stephanus, who had clung tenaciously to what God had revealed, and who was the first fruits of Achaia, and still the one to whom Paul here sent the very dearest and kindest of greetings. Remarkably, we see in that very passage that ye know the house of Stephanus. The church in Corinth knew about this man. It was not as if Paul needed to tell them who he was or remind them of his stature. Paul says, you know him and you know his house. You know that for which he stands. Perhaps as a side lesson, we can even be reminded today do those far and wide know about your house and mine? Do they know that for which we stand? Do they know what kind of house we have? Are they appreciative of the fact of the things that we will not do and also of those matters that we will defend even if it costs our life? It would seem Stephanus had that kind of reputation and his house had that kind of bearing. With regard to the house of Stephanus, Paul goes on to say this, they have addicted themselves to the ministry of the saints. What did Paul mean by that? What kind of addiction then did this house of Stephanus have? I would submit that perhaps to the remainder of this lesson, we can give some thought to what is at the bottom of that very slide. We find in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that Paul personally baptized Stephanus, he apparently in his that baptism introduced these into the very nature of the body of Christ. That does bring us, though, to this addiction. We mentioned earlier how negative, bad, destructive many addictions in our world can be. What kind of addiction was this one? 
you'll notice the language is very critical. Paul says that these had addicted themselves to the ministry of the saints. I mentioned a moment ago that this is the one and only occurrence in all of the King James Bible in which the word addicted occurs. You'll notice in the Greek it literally means to be appointed, to be arranged, or to be set. And hence, if you're reading in the American Standard Translation, for example, the latter part of verse 15 will read as follows. They have set themselves to the ministry or to minister unto the saints. Thus they had set, they had appointed, they had delegated themselves unto the ministering of the saints. Here we find a very different kind of addiction than that to which we frequently have our attention brought today. An addiction to the ministry of the saints. Let's unfold the remainder of our lesson some particulars about that addiction. The nature of what the Holy Spirit has had to say about it. To do that, I would invite just a few more moments of your attention as you think about some of the other kinds of addiction that we see today, for that will give us an even greater contrast between these kinds of addictions and the one spoken of here with respect to the household of Stephanus. A list of some of the addictions that you and I so often see today would perhaps take us to midnight or more. Addictions are rampant about us. We see them on so many occasions. Our youngsters who attend college can now be schooled in psychology in such a way that they can identify, work with, and help counsel those who suffer under addictions. In fact, there are so many of them that now there are specialties in various regions of addictions. One can specialize in geriatrical addictions. One can specialize in organizational addictions. One can specialize in a whole host of other varieties as well. As you give some thought to just this brief listing that I have made, it nonetheless may springboard in your mind to so many others as well. Alcohol. We are well aware that we live in a world so often overcome with alcoholics. Not just those who drink from time to time, for even that's bad enough, and even that's sinful, but those who have come to the point of being addicted to this in such a fashion way that it rules and leads their entire life. They quickly, if allowed to themselves, will destroy their marriage, their children, their income, their profession, everything for one more drink, one more bottle, one more opportunity to become inebriated in that way. Alcoholism. There's a nationwide organization, Alcoholics Anonymous, that will aid and provide some degree of support to help a person who wishes to do so try to get out of this addiction to finally overcome and withdraw from it. Some of the stories that you and I may read, in fact, will stretch the mind to imagine the destruction that can come on a family as they suffer beneath the load of alcoholism. And of course, we know that addiction is such that the Scriptures condemn the social taking in of that beverage, both Old and New Testaments alike. In Proverbs 20, verse 1, we read, Wine is a mocker. Strong drink is raging, and whoever is deceived thereby is not wise. In Ephesians 5, 18, the inspired apostle, the same peerless apostle Paul, on that occasion said, Be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. In 1 Peter 4, verse number 3, we have the especial condemnation of drinking as it occurs with regard to the exact Greek word therein appearing. 
as we give some thought to the thrust behind what that word involves, may we notice that more than one Greek lexicographer has identified that Ephesians 5.18 word methusko as to begin to be softened. That is the first drop of drink until the last one. Paul wasn't just condemning the final state of total inebriation. He was, wasn't he, condemning anything that leads to any lack of the capability of judgment that God has given us. And certainly, even ethyl alcohol in the minutest matters will lead to the rendition of failing to have good judgment, sober and sound appreciation. Thus, that addiction in all its destructiveness condemned in the wonderful Word of God. In the second place, Certainly in this part of the world, we are perhaps keenly aware of what our drug enforcement individuals have to face and fight by virtue of narcotic drugs. We know there's cocaine, marijuana, heroin. Time to time, our news reporters will show us pictures of a field of it that's been found, perhaps a place that's growing it underground or in an apartment. We're well aware, too, that sometimes even harder kinds of drugs, those prescription painkillers, Individuals are able to buy on the streets and find access to it. We notice yet again how the Word of God doesn't condone that kind of behavior when those things are taken in the matters in which they so often are. We find in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 6, as well as 1 Peter chapter 5, as well, verse 8, that we have words of wisdom from the wonderful God of heaven that helps us see that God did not intend life here to be like that. It's true this place is no heaven, but he did not intend humanity to abuse the good blessings he's given in the nature of his planet. Are we not in position to notice in Psalm 24, 1, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. It belongs to him and ought to be used to his glory and ought to be used to bring honor to him, not to be used to destroy my brain the capability of my nervous system, for that's what those drugs will eventually do. The brain, after a while, will be like the brain of one far younger. It'll be unable to ever get over the kind of difficulty and disaster that it's been presented. When you and I recall that we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, that this body belongs to God. It's the temple of the Holy Spirit and ought to be used to glorify and honor Him. Thus, who could think in the right mind about destroying the brain, the nervous system, or other any part of the body by taking in these destructive things? When used rightly as a medicine, they have their appropriateness. When they're abused in the way, by way of addiction, it has gone far too much, hasn't it? In the third place, gambling. The world in which we live seems to enjoy very much the instantaneous element of gambling. It's touted, virtually all the lotteries with which I'm familiar, as a self-gratifying thing in which you can garner fun and marvelous nature in an instant. Gambling. Touted on the television, the radio. Perhaps we have friends and neighbors as you stand behind them at the convenience store and watch them devote $20 and all the Lottery tickets, they can buy with it. It happens, doesn't it, on so many occasions. Is there not a gambler's organization known as Gamblers Anonymous, just like Alcoholics Anonymous? It can be addictive. There are those who, in fact, have 
gambled away virtually their entire paycheck, perhaps even their entire bank account, all the money they have, including their house, simply in order to gamble. May we give some thought, here's another addiction, destructive to be sure. Take everything almost to close off your back, away from your wife, your children, even the things that you've got. God doesn't approve this kind of addiction either, does he? I've listed for you the text in Matthew twenty-five, fourteen, as well as 1 Corinthians 4, verse 2, both of which set before us the demand of God that we be good stewards of what he has given us. In fact, that text in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 2, demands clearly that you and I be found faithful and good stewards of that which he has presented to us. We each could thus understand that if the one-talent man was able to give back only what he'd been given, and he was considered a wicked and slothful servant, how will God look upon me if I'm able to give back far less because I've gambled most of it away? The principle speaks for itself, doesn't it? And so it is as we give some thought to gambling. It does, of course, relate to money. For aren't there many who can become addicted to money? They base all that they are, even their value as a person, on my bank account. How much money do I have? How much can I get? And hence, in that regard, have they not failed to appreciate? First Timothy 6, verse 10, For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveteth after they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. When we thus give some appreciation to an addiction to this matter like money, that, let's face it, we are not able to take it with us. When we come to the end of our journey here, let it be noted that there are no safes that are packed in with that hearse. There are no bank accounts that are tacked in with it. It will do no good. Because isn't it true that Jesus said, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth and rust hath corrupt, where thieves break through and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust hath corrupt, where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Those chilling words of Matthew 6, verses 19 and 20. When we appreciate that there's also a tremendous opportunity to become addicted to sex, because it has become so rampant, our television programs show us half-naked men and women. Sometimes it's more than half. They often show us television scenes in which it truly is gone far, far too far. We, of course, see it in the various magazines. We see it, of course, on the Internet if we aren't careful. Have you ever found yourself in a position in which you perhaps seek for what you think is a wholesome website and some person under a dastardly deed of deception has tacked on a guy that takes you to a pornographic website, it can happen. Because, you see, we live in a society that preys so often upon sex. Our youngsters are often the victims of it. Those who have rings of pornographic activity because we live in a place where adults will pay for it. And they long to have it because they're addicted to sex. In all those ways, it's ugly, it's disgusting, and it's sinful. But nonetheless, that addiction exists. Notice some of the passages I've listed for your consideration. In the second verse of the seventh chapter of 1 Corinthians, Paul there explicitly said, To avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife, 
and let every woman have her own husband. That clearly teaches us that any other pursuit than that would thus involve fornication. As we appreciate perhaps also the text of Hebrews 13.4, Paul there stated two different sides of this very interesting coin. Marriage is honorable in all, and the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. We see the blessed side of marriage as God had planned it, in which sex can be appreciated in the loveliness of what God made. But we also see that whoremongers and adulterers, those who seemingly enjoy sex outside what God has allowed, they will be judged. We notice one more time, God has the proper placement of this matter. And in that particular case, we appreciate the world's addiction to this matter of sex is a wrong thing. And it leads to so much destructiveness all the way around. There are those addicted to recreation and entertainment. They live their life for the next opportunity to be entertained, for the next ability to enjoy recreation. As often as we have noted in the Bible that recreation in its place is wholesome, it's good, it in fact seems to revitalize and refresh the body. But there are those who, of course, have taken that too far. They have failed to understand that life here is more than the body. For isn't it true that we read in 1 Timothy 4.8 that bodily exercise profiteth little, but godliness is profitable unto all things, not only that which is here, but also that which is to come. Hence, we perhaps can think twice as we give thought to those who are so addicted to recreation that they ignore the other duties of life. Maybe their work, maybe their wife, maybe their children, maybe the other duties that should go along with a proper and organized lifestyle, certainly a life in which they may have ignored godliness and all that goes with it. Have you known of someone who would prefer to be fishing or on a golf course than at Bible study on Sunday? Can you think of those who find it far more attractive to involve themselves in some other activity than to be present at the services of the church? It might be that they be nations, but it could be. Might it also be noted in terms of the gratification of self? Perhaps as much as any other, this one is becoming more prominent and more prevalent, isn't it? Where we live in a world in which it's my right to have what I want, when I want, the way I want it. And you have no right to tell me otherwise. Though our founding fathers never dreamed of any such thing, there are those who are reaching perilously close to interpreting our Constitution almost to say that. And if it comes to that point, what kind of laws will we then have? You see, there must be a recognized appreciation that some things are not my right in the interest of humanity and in the interest, certainly, of what God has revealed. Notice what we've said earlier. Those who, of course, engage in things like homosexuality or some of these various kinds of pornography we discussed. Can you imagine now we're living in a time where a lawyer will claim it's his right to do that? Do we not live in a free society, freedom of speech, freedom of activity? Should he not be able to do that? You could just imagine a lawyer arguing that and winning when it would be unthinkable for anyone knowledgeable of the sacred text, the awareness of what life here ought to be, and the responsibilities that God attaches to what's going to happen hereafter. You see, addictions in so many ways are destroying this nation and this world. 
isn't it somewhat refreshing to hear Paul speak about a good addiction? One that we've seen here in the 16th chapter of the 1 Corinthian letter. Perhaps it is in regard to that. Let's now turn back and see what this addiction of the household of Stephanus really was. The ending part of verse 15 again says that they have addicted themselves to the ministry of the saints. As we give some thought to this addiction and to some of the details that I have asked us to consider, you'll notice that the household of Stephanus, as we notice especially in verse 17, had been involved with even supplying Paul with some of the needs of his ministry. Would you notice again the reading? I am glad, Paul wrote, of the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, for that which was lacking on your part they have supplied. We thus learn that Stephanus had a role to play in providing the Apostle Paul with some of those things that he made use of as he involved himself in the spreading of the gospel. You'll notice with me what a wonderful compliment that was to not only Stephanus, but also Fortunatus as well as Achaicus. We can see that Stephanus took upon himself in a day of long ago where there wasn't nearly the easiness of some of the things we appreciate. And yet Paul said that Stephanus came to him. This was long before the days of buses, long before the days of airplanes and cars, long before the days of the easy kinds of transportation we would imagine, and yet we appreciate Stephanus in some way came to Paul and supplied his needs in regard to the work of the ministry. Isn't that a wonderful consideration? A high compliment indeed to this gentleman named Stephanus, and also to the household of apparently which he himself was a part. As we appreciate that dedication and the personal visit that he made to Paul, we each can understand certainly in that day it required dedication, devotion, a commitment to that for which Paul stood, the truth of God. And that is a high challenge for each of us today, isn't it? For would that be a wonderful case if the world were addicted to that? Wouldn't it be fantastic if you and I knew so many who were addicted to the ministry of the saints, addicted in such a way that they enjoyed and fervently pursued it, that it was a fact of the matter for their livelihood and what they considered so dear and so very special? You see, that's a very positive kind of addiction. Not nearly like those negative ones we saw a moment ago that harm the very nature of the fabric of society, that harm the very thing upon which the bedrock foundation of integrity that this nation once had. It might certainly be noted that there are others in the New Testament who are spoken of in ways much like this. I've listed but three. But can we perhaps give some thought to Gaius? The book of Third John, it's only a one-chapter book, but in that book of Third John, we find Gaius so highly complimented. Specifically in verses 5 and following, it was therein said that whatever he had done to strangers, he had done for the, for, for the cross of Christ, and he had done it for the defense and character of the gospel. So many he had apparently helped along their way in terms of coming to know the Lord. So many that he had challenged by his example of love and his example of faithful character. Gaius, you see, had also been a marvelous example of being addicted to something that was good. 
Perhaps another example would be Epaphroditus in Philippians chapter 2. Here's a gentleman who had come to the point of death. He was on the brink of death. And Paul, in fact, in writing, made note to the Philippian congregation that their concern for him was well-founded because indeed he was sick, nine to death. However, God had blessed him, Paul said. And furthermore, this Epaphroditus had been such a great aid to Paul in his ministry because he had been able to accomplish what others had been unable by virtue of the distance to do. Speaking about that matter of distance, you and I might find ourselves in that position from time to time. The gospel needs to go to Russia and to India and to Singapore and to any other nation that you and I might name. It might be you and I are not in a position to be able to go there for one or other various reasons. But there are those who have taken the liberty and have taken upon themselves to work in that way. May you and I be like Stephanus. May we be like Achaicus and Epaphroditus and Gaius. May we help them in what way we can, encouraging them financially, encouraging them in other ways by prayer, perhaps by occasional letter of encouragement. And may we be thankful for those letters of update that they send us so that we can be more apprised and more aware of the things that are going on. When you and I are able to help in ways like that, at least in a sense, we too are being addicted to the work of the ministry. And maybe that brings us to one final example. We come to Onesiphorus, mentioned in 2 Timothy chapter 1. Onesiphorus seems to have been a very interesting individual. When we read of him, Paul simply says this of him, He was not ashamed of my chain. He apparently even entered into prison to be of some assistance to Paul. He was not ashamed to be identified with the very man who was imprisoned because of his faith. Onesiphorus joined himself to Paul, providing encouragement, sustenance, provision, and strength. And in so doing, Paul highly made note of how much he meant to me. May we be aware today the addiction of the ministry, spoken of of Stephanus in 1 Corinthians 16, is perhaps an addiction that you and I could seek to more thoroughly embed in our hearts. For isn't that a wonderful addiction? Not so negative as all those we've listed, but an addiction that will not only be a great benefit to ourselves, but think about our family, our wives, our husbands, our children, those who can firsthand see what a good addiction can do and what a positive impact it can make upon life here and what a hope it can bring for life hereafter. Certainly drugs can't do that. Sex won't do that. Money won't do that, for they don't stretch beyond the grave. But we notice things embedded in the truth of God do. And when we have based our hope and our reward upon that, we can be well apprised of the text of Revelation 22.12, when therein we read that God will reward to every man according to his works. So what have our works been? Have we been addicted to the ministry of the saints? If so, our reward will be in response to that addiction. And what a wonderful reward it will be. On the other hand, the sadness of thinking about those addicted to these other things, if they don't repent and if they don't make some changes prior to their departure from the fleshly scenes of this life, what predicament will they stand in then? I think we each know the answer to that question. For God has made it all too plain in the sacred scriptures, hasn't he? And perhaps that brings us to the closing thought of the lesson tonight. Addiction, like we've studied tonight, 
challenges all of us to appreciate the importance of ministering and serving the saints. Are we serving the church, all of us, in the way that God has allowed us to, in the way we can, or are we holding back? Are we reserving our addiction for something else, or someone else, or perhaps some other matter that we should leave in our past? Tonight, where do you and I then stand in that? These matters that we've studied about the addiction of the household of Stephanus stand so opposed to the selfishness that we have seen in those negative addictions. Isn't it true? All of them we've studied are based in some way on selfishness. What I want, what I prefer. I don't really care what you want, it's what the world tells us. It's my business, it's my goal, it's my objective, it's my pursuit. And you don't need to get in my way. God has a very different message than that, doesn't he? Certainly we need to have appreciation for the stumbling block we can place before others. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 8.13, I will eat no meat while the world standeth if it makes my brother to stumble. He had such consideration for those who were his brothers and sisters in Christ that he wanted to personally do nothing that would present a stumbling block to them. In so doing, did he not tell the Philippians in Philippians 2 verses 3 and 4 that they were to look upon the things of others with a view not to steal them, but to encourage them in the ways that were good? And so it is tonight. Where do we each rank our addictions? Are they on the side that's good or are they on the side that's negative? If you find the need in your life to make some changes with regard to the ones that are negative, to eliminate them and replace them with ones that are good, God could help with that. In fact, He wants to help with it. Christ has promised He will help with it. And so tonight, if we could be of assistance in a public way, follow the example of Stephanus and be baptized into Christ, 1 Corinthians 16. If tonight we could assist you in doing that, it has prerequisites of belief, repentance, and confession. If you become a Christian in that way, but no longer are a faithful one, come back to your first love. For we'd be honored to be of assistance as we pray with and for you. We would only ask you, let us know in the ways we could be of assistance while together we stand and while we sing.